Well, good morning again. After a quick break, I'm back, and as you can see, I'm, I'm not Aaron. Uh, Aaron is actually away this week, taking Macy down to Florida for Word of Life camp, and so uh, I think you guys, if you were here last week for the commissioning, you saw uh, how excited he was to be an empty nester, but uh, pray for him nonetheless, because uh, he is, uh, he, he does have no more kids left at home, and he is uh, trusting his daughter to a camp and, uh, and, and, and to the Lord, that he would grow her through this journey. So, and he'll be back with us next week. I do, I do have to appreciate uh, Aaron for the, the quote that he used last week by D.L. Moody. It was impactful when he, when he mentioned, if you were here, the idea of uh, placing the cookies on the bottom shelf where everybody can reach him. And, and that's actually what we're going to endeavor to do this morning because uh, this passage is so full uh, of application for us. On the surface, it might look like just uh, details of, of an event in a particular place and time, but as, as we dig in, you will see that every verse is full of some way that we can apply this in our lives, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm going to try my very best to make it as plain as I possibly can uh, for you. And the other thing that I want you to appreciate about this text, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and flip there, is it is such a great, such a great evidence that the Word of God is alive and it, and it is changing lives just as much today. Uh, it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Because as we look at this passage, you're going to see, you're going to see that the issues that Paul was writing to the Corinthian church about are, are the exact issues that, that we have today. They might look and feel a little bit different. They might have different names on them, but they are the same things, and God's Word is sufficient for us today, just as sufficient as it was when this letter was written. And so, if you haven't turned yet, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord has assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid out a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we give you thanks for your word, Lord. It is truth, Lord. It is, it is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. It has the power to pierce 
and to separate between bone and marrow. Lord, would you use your word this morning in the way that only you can, Lord, to shine a light in the dark places of our lives, Lord, but more than to just light them up, Lord, to leave us changed, conformed more and more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, first and foremost, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and we're picking up kind of on what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, because this whole first section of of 1 Corinthians is really about the disunity the, the arguments, the infighting that is going on in the church in Corinth. And so he continues this line of thought and he, and he calls them to remember back. He talks about when he first came to them. He says, when I, when I first came to you, I fed you milk, spiritual milk. And so that's, that brings us to the first thing that I want us to see this morning. Our first point, a hearty diet is for the mature. And, and we certainly, we have to start with milk. That's clear from what he says, because he says, I, when I first came to you, I fed you milk. And this, he doesn't mean this is a bad thing. This is not an insult. He's not saying you, were, you, you knew so little that I could only give you milk as a negative. They had not heard of Christ prior to his coming, or they had only heard rumors. And so even as he was sharing the gospel, it's, it's right for him to only feed them milk. That's, that's why he says infants, because it's logical. What do you give a baby? You give them milk. Well, what do you give a baby in the faith? You give them milk. It's, it's necessary. We have to break the ideas down into things that we can receive, that people were discipling. If you're discipling, others can receive. That, that's part of what it means to uh, to. to teach and to lead others is that you give it to them in a way that they can understand it, right? And as I was thinking about this idea of spiritual milk, I started to wonder, well, you know, there's a lot of other places in Scripture where, where milk is referenced as that, as that spiritual food for us, but I couldn't find any that surprisingly said what the milk is. And so I started to think about it. I started to think about, of all the things that we learn as part of our faith, as all, of all the knowledge that comes from the Word that we grow in, there are certainly things that are great mysteries to us, and it doesn't matter how much you grow in depth of your faith, there are things that are going to continue to be mysteries, but there are also things that are very plain. And, and as I thought about what some of those things were, as laid out in Scripture, what might this milk be? I, I thought of things like repentance, you know, this, this idea that we must turn from our sin, not just once, but continually. I thought about salvation and the assurance of it, just understanding how it is that we're saved. I thought about prayer. I thought about giving and worship and fellowship. These things that are so essential to our faith. These are also the things that in, in Acts chapter 2, this is what we see the early church doing when, when there was no church. When they came together and believed together and there was nobody other than the Spirit to show them what to do, these were the things that they did. And so I think, I think that's a good foundation for us to understand what might be some of these spiritual, the spiritual milk that we need to understand and that is appropriate for infants. It's what they need to grow. Uh, that, 
that's, that's, the, that's the analogy here, right? It's what you feed a baby because it's what a baby needs to grow. If something else would do it, you would feed them something else, but it's not. It's what they need in order to be able to grow up in the faith. But here's what's important. It's not where we're meant to stay. You know, Paul says, you weren't ready, and so I gave you this spiritual milk. You weren't ready for solid food. But then there's a, there's a thing that comes right after it, which tells us that he's not satisfied with the condition that they're in right now, because he says, and you're still not ready, right? So I came to you, I gave you the gospel, I gave you this spiritual milk because you weren't ready for solid food, but now, all this time later, I'm writing you, and you're still not ready for solid food. And so not only do we see that milk is what's appropriate for infants, that, that, that food that we can digest that helps us grow in the infancy of our faith, but also we see that there is a test for readiness before we move on, right? We don't move on from milk until readiness is apparent. And so how, how do we gauge this readiness? He says they're not ready. What, what do we understand this readiness to be? Well, uh, here's a few things that came to my mind. One, again, I think Paul is wonderful because he gives us this analogy of, of infants and it helps us really understand what he's talking about. Because how do you know when an infant is ready for something more than milk when they're hungry. Hunger is a test for readiness. You, you know, as a, as a parent, and some of you guys as parents or grandparents, you, you may know this, but when do you start giving your, your kids solid food when you give them milk and they're still hungry and they're still crying and they won't go to sleep? Because those are the two things that you need as a parent is for them to stop crying and for them to take a nap. So you give them solid food when they demonstrate that they're still hungry. What does that look like for us as believers? Well, we have readiness looks like a demonstrated hunger for the word. I, I was talking about this the other a uh, couple weeks ago with one of the guys that's in my D group, and he's leading another Bible study, and we're just talking about you know the, the nature of folks and how sometimes they they come and go and they're not always there, and and this was our conversation because it came back to we have to look for people who are hungry. By their hunger for the word, they're telling us that they're ready to grow. And likewise, as you look at yourself, if you are never hungry for God's word, then you're not ready to grow. And if you've been in the faith any amount of time, according to what Paul's saying, that's a problem, that you should be ready to grow. And so hunger is a way that we can assess readiness. We also can assess readiness by faithfulness right? Faithfulness with what they've already been given, faithfulness with the things that they've learned, which, which made up that spiritual milk, is a good way that we can know whether they're ready for solid food. Jesus, as he told the parable of the dishonest manager, right? He said, he, said, he who is faithful with a little will also be faithful with a lot. And so if we've given that, that person or ourselves, that spiritual milk that is meant to help us grow, and we've been faithful with it, that's a good sign, that's one good sign, that we might be ready to move on to solid food. And likewise, he, is fa- who, he who is not faithful with a little, they won't be faithful with much. And so we have their hunger for the word as a sign of readiness, we have their faithfulness as a sign of readiness, and we have obedience. Obedience is one of the key things that we're given as followers of Christ to help discern where somebody is at. Ultimately, I don't know. 
I can't look at any person that I am walking with, and none of you can look at me, and know whether I'm ready for any new thing. Only the Lord knows that. Ready to grow in spiritual depth, ready to grow in this solid food. But one of the ways that we can tell at least some sense of readiness is by obedience. It's by when they hear the word of God, do they do it? Or, or are they, as James says, hearers only, right? And so we, we, have to, we have to use hunger, we have to use faithfulness, and we have to use obedience as that test of their readiness to move on in the depth of faith. And again, likewise, I, I don't want you to just hear this as all, only things that I do externally with somebody that I'm, that I'm teaching or leading or discipling, but these are, you can assess yourself this way. Do I demonstrate a hunger for God's word? Do I demonstrate a faithfulness with the things that I'm learning? Do I demonstrate obedience as that as I learn a new thing, I'm challenged to obey it? And so we have to start with milk for those who need somebody to feed themselves. We test readiness before we move on. And ultimately, we reserve solid food for those who can feed themselves. You, you see... Again, this is where the analogy helps us so much understand the application because you have to be able to feed yourself for solid food, for that depth of spiritual knowledge. That's what he's talking about when he says solid food. That, that growing in depth in our faith, you have to be able to feed yourself. That doesn't mean that there's no need for a place like this. It doesn't mean that there's no need for a teacher or, or for, for people to help you see things but the predominant growth in your faith is going to come from being able to feed yourself. And those are the people that need solid spiritual food. And how, how, do, how do we know? What does that look like? What do they do with that solid spiritual food? Well, again, I, I thought of a, a few things that just might help make this clear for us. One, they've got to be able to chew it. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Word of God requires the ability to chew. You, you have to be able to meditate on his word. And you have to be able to resolve for yourself what it means. And, and if your Bible study doesn't, doesn't involve you going over and over and over the same passage to really come to a, a resolution about what it is that God is saying, then it's possible that you're, that you're not ready for solid food, that you shouldn't be digging into those things because you, you don't have the ability to chew it. And you should work on the ability to chew it by being the other things that we said, right? Hungry and faithful and obedient to the things that you already know. So you got to be able to chew it. You also got to be able to digest it, right? What good is something that you can chew up if you don't digest it? And, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, you got to be able to apply it to yourself. So it, it, it's one thing to understand what the Word of God means. It is totally another thing to say, now that I understand what this means, how does that impact my life? What is, where, where does my life need to change to match what the Word of God says? So you have to be able to chew it, you've got to be able to digest it, and ultimately you've got to be able to grow from it. That's the whole point. That's the reason, in case nobody ever told you, that's the reason why we study the Scriptures. That's the reason why we meet together in small groups. That's the reason why we meet together in here is so that we would grow not just in our knowledge, but in our obedience and in our image that we are of Christ. We would grow more and more in His likeness. And so as we think about what are, what are the criteria for being fed on solid food, well, you've got to be able to chew, you've got to be able to digest, and you've got to be able to grow from it. You know, one of the interesting things as you prepare 
for, for these messages is that sometimes you come up with stuff that is not biblically related at all, but makes a, a, an outstanding illustration. And I came across such a piece of information, and uh, I wanted to share it with you. There are a number of uh, relatively recent, like within the last uh, 20 or so years, uh, scientific studies that uh, at the first service I said facts, and I don't want to confuse that. Scientific studies are not facts. Uh, there are scientific studies that, that say that um, babies that get solid food before they're ready, and they, and they, they kind of define this around the four or five month period for most babies, like they, they probably could eat it if you chopped it up small enough, but they're not ready for it. Almost always relates to higher level levels of obesity and higher levels of disease in, in their adulthood. And so what does that mean for us as a church? Well, that means that knowledge without readiness results in spiritual obesity. The, the phrase that we use occasionally is educated beyond our obedience. Knowledge, learning information without the intent to grow from it and do anything with it just results in spiritual obesity. It just makes us fat. That's all it does. Instead, the Word of God is meant to grow us and to shape us and to change us and to form us into the image of Christ. And so we have to be able to chew it and we have to be able to digest it and we have to be able to grow from it. So, you know, one, we've said a hearty diet is for the mature. Two, what does maturity look, look like? Well, Paul gives us an example of what it doesn't look like for sure. And, and, and that leads us to our second point, which is that disunity is absolutely a sign of spiritual immaturity. Disunity in the church is a sign of spiritual immaturity. You see, we have the spirit of God. If you are a follower of Christ, we have the Spirit of God in us, and it is a spirit. It is not multiple spirits. It is one singular spirit that exists in all of us, and so he's leading us all in the same direction. One spirit can't go multiple different places, and yet the only conclusion that we could have when, we, when there's a lack of unity or when there is disunity is it's not the spirit that's leading us, but it's, it is our flesh. And so what do we do with that? Well, one, we see that uh, when there is disunity, it means that our flesh has not yet been put to death. You know, he's, he's writing to them there, and he says in verse 3, for you are still of the flesh, right? So there, is, there always exists for us as believers a tension between being in the spirit and being in our flesh, but it requires a continual death to our flesh, a continual crucifixion of our flesh. It's not something that is instantaneous. It's not something that happens overnight. It is, it is an evolving sign of maturity as you are able to put to death the flesh. And if you don't believe me that both of those things can exist in a believer, both our flesh that we're, is warring against the Spirit of God, even though we are new creations. Well, uh, Paul addresses this in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5 and verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he's talking to believers here because he's telling them to walk by the Spirit. And he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, so it is clear that they both exist 
within us, even as new creations following Christ, there is a war that exists within us between our flesh and the Spirit. And so one of the signs of a lack of maturity that we can point to is a flesh that has not yet been put to death, that is constantly rearing up and causing us to do things the way that he says here, in, in a human way, right? Instead of the way that God would have us do them. The second thing that we can see here, he, he says it very next there. He says, for while there is jealousy, jealousy is a sign of immaturity too. Our jealousy, our jealousy stirs up inwardly. You see, the, the problem with jealousy is that it, it most often is something that happens inside of us, right? Even As much as he's saying you're still behaving in a human way, you know, and, and that is sort of ambiguous, and we can, we can see what some of those signs are, he, he then points to jealousy. And the problem is jealousy starts inside, and it stirs up inside. It causes all kinds of problems outside, but it starts on, on the inside. And jealousy, whether you know it or not, it, it's been there since the fall, Right? I mean, in Genesis chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the Bible, the, the, the fall of man, the first sin is chapter 3. Chapter 4 is really the, the second significant thing that we see detailed in man's sinfulness, and, it, and it's Cain's murder of Abel. And, and what's the reason? Jealousy. They, they both brought sacrifices before the Lord. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing, Cain's was not. And what does the Bible say? It says he was angry and his face fell. I mean, I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better description of what jealous, inward jealousy looks like from the outside other than this just countenance that's defeated because he's jealous of his brother and it leads him to murder him. And so it existed from then on. It's, it's a, a specific trait that is... Uh, part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to be in our flesh, and it is always there. And James says that it continues to this day. He says in James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And so it persists. And, and that's why Paul writes to them to say that the jealousy that he's seeing there is, again, back to our first point, a sign that they still have not put to death their flesh. And so we see uh, the lack of uh, uh, crucifixion, a mortification of our flesh. We see jealousy that stirs up inwardly. But the thing about jealousy stirring up inwardly is that it, it always leads to something outwardly. It's just a matter of time, right? Like sometimes that jealousy lasts for a long time. Sometimes that jealousy in, in an instant boils over into something outward. And that's the next thing that we see Paul describe here as he talks about uh, the strife that, are, that is among them. He says, and so our, our point there that we want to see is that our, from our jealousy, our conflicts and strife and dissensions erupt outwardly. You see, what's inside will always make its way outside. There, there's, there's no way around it. And, and again, Jesus pointed to this in, in Matthew chapter 7 as he rebuked the Pharisees and he said, you brood of vipers. How is it that you speak good when you are evil? And then he tells us something that's such a key piece of information for us. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on the inside? If it's, if it's our flesh and not the Spirit of God, 
If we're sowing jealousy, what will always come from that is disunity and strife and conflict among our brothers and sisters and with the world that's around us. And so our conflict, strife, and dissension erupt outwardly, but ultimately our pride and our arrogance is what creates divisions among us. You see this here in what he says in verse 4, because he's, he's talking about what the result of this strife is, or he's really characterizing exactly what he's talking about. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? And so he's pointing to the fact that their, their pride and their arrogance in following these leaders and these ideals is the division that he's specifically speaking about in the passage. It is the result of all the jealousy and strife and disunity and lack of spiritual maturity that he's writing to them about is erupting in this, this division that's happened among them over their pride and over their arrogance. You know, what's, what's interesting about this is that insecurity is ultimately what's, what's at the root of our divisions. And I know that this seems counterintuitive because I just said it had to do with pride and arrogance, but it really does. And I want you to think through this with me because what happens when you hear a thing or learn a thing, you never take the time to grow in depth of that knowledge for yourself. You never take the time to settle on your own convictions. You never take the time to know and understand what it is that you believe about a specific thing when somebody confronts that, your, your only response is to push them away because you, you lack the ability to deal with it. Because your pride and your arrogance say, I don't know how to defend this idea, but I know, I, I know somebody told it, me, told it to me and I know it's right, and so I just can't have this conversation with you. And then it doesn't matter whether it's in the church or outside of the church. We, we see this so clearly that we know that this is, this is a a human issue that we're experiencing because of people's lack of an ability to disagree and still get along because nobody is settled on their conviction because they've never taken the time, especially with spiritual issues, to eat the spiritual food and digest it and chew it and become resolved in their understanding so that when they have a conversation with somebody else, they can actually just disagree and, and, and move on because both people are settled in their beliefs. This is, this is the result of us being on a milk diet for too long, right? You know, the benefit of milk is somebody else feeds you. But when you don't learn to feed yourself, you don't learn how to think for yourself, and all you know is what somebody has told you. And those things shatter when they're confronted. And these, that's what's caused this division among them. And, and I want you to know something. We don't know a lot biblically about who Apollos is we know things from church history, but we don't know a lot biblically. What we can tell is that, you know, Paul obviously from the text came there, came to Corinth first. Apollos came later, and by the way he speaks about him, waters the same seed that Paul planted. We don't get any evidence anywhere that there was an actual disagreement between Paul and Apollos, and yet. You have this church saying, oh, I'm following Apollos and I'm following Paul. And they've made up things that are divisive to them that don't even exist because they don't know how to defend their ideas. I I, got to appreciate my brother Kevin back here. Kevin, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. But but Kevin and I, 
Kevin's probably the one person that I disagree with the most. And I'm going to couch that. Most frequently. Kevin and I agree about 99.9% of things. But when we disagree, we're able to just talk about it. Is that right? Is it right or wrong? Okay. We're, we're able to just talk about it. And we're just able to disagree. We don't have to hold it in. We don't have to feel like, man, I can't talk about this with Kevin because he's going to get mad and storm off. And he, I hope, doesn't feel that way about me. Um, we're able to just disagree. And even though we probably agree quantitatively more on everything, we have more disagreements because we just, we both know what we believe and we're able to talk about it. And we're able to move forward from those things. And, and that's, the, that's a sign of spiritual maturity in the church that we're able to, to disagree on things because we're resolved in our conclusions and we're able to have conversations about them. And um, I want you to see that unity and maturity, they actually create security in, in contrast to insecurity promoting division. And we see that in, in Ephesians, if you want to just flip there with me real quick, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. You see... As we grow in our knowledge, it creates unity and it creates security because we know what we believe in. We're not able to be dissuaded and impacted, and that allows us to talk about things in a way that's intelligent instead of in a way that's prideful um, and just is insistent that we're right. That's, that's not the way. Uh, the way is to, to know what you believe uh, and to lean on it and trust it. And so, Moving into our third point, I want us to see, and this, this is the rest of the passage, five and on, that unity, we, we actually get the key in here to, to what unity, how do, how do we get biblical unity in a church? And unity comes from a spirit of submission. Uh, it, it comes from us submitting ourselves to others as fellow servants in God's kingdom. That's what he's talking about there in verse 5. He says, um, oh, I'm still in Ephesians. That's not going to help. Let's flip back over here. Uh, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And then it's interesting, right? Because he doesn't say who is Apollos and who is Paul. He says, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So, how, how do we get unity? Well, we get unity by submitting ourselves to each other, recognizing that we're, we're all servants in the same field. We are all in the same field that God has called us to and gifted us for, and he has given us a mission. And if we stop thinking about ourselves as people that are doing different tasks in different fields, and my ministry is important, and my ministry is important, and this, this thing is important, and that thing is important, and we start to recognize what Paul is saying, that we're all laboring together for the sake of the same gospel, one of the things that you get from that is, is unity. Because I can see how my labor contributes to your labor, and your labor contributes to my labor. And so we, we, we have to recognize that we're all serving together in the same field. We also 
have to recognize that we all have a job to do. And they may be different, but that's by design. He says that he planted and Apollos watered. Well, let me ask you this. What is it when you pour water on the ground and there's no seed there? You just make a mud. That's, that's it. You ain't doing no work. You're just, you're just making mud. And likewise, if you throw seed onto the ground and nobody comes along and waters it, you've just thrown them to their death. That's, that's all that you've done. You have not planted and grown anything. And so we have to recognize that even though we have different jobs, we all have a job to do. And every job serves a purpose. And we've all been gifted differently for those jobs and for those purposes, but we've all been given the same field and we all serve the same Lord. And he wants the, the church in Corinth to see that, that that ought to create unity among them and not division. So we, we have to submit ourselves to others as fellow servants in God's kingdom. And we also have to recognize that only God gives the increase and gets the glory. That's, that's where he heads in, in verse 6, you know, when he says, I planted up and Apollos watered and God gave the growth. And then he goes on to say, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so what do we take from this? Well, one, we should take that, that no man should be elevated, not by himself and not, not by others to the point where it's taking away from the mission that God has given us. You know, one of the things that we did back in the fall is we rolled out some guiding principles for our staff, and they've started to trickle down to some of our leadership. Some of you guys may have seen some of them, some of you may have not, but I want to tell you about one of them. One of them is called kingdom-minded, and what that principle says is that every one of us, every one of us is going to recognize that we labor together for the sake of the gospel, and, and this is exactly what he's talking about. When we recognize that God gives the growth and God gives the increase, then we're not inclined to create, and this is, we're not intended to create, by the way, celebrities in the faith, right? There is no Paul and Apollos and this person and that person. And we see that happen out in the world, right? We recognize it because of how much uh, uh, things of the faith we can consume on media, right? So if you have a particular person that you like to listen to, chances are you can find all of everything that they've ever preached on uh, somewhere on the internet, right? And because they like topics, you can get so honed in on the things that, that are really important to them that they become really important to you. And so you like this, and that's what you seek out. But God has not intended to create celebrities. He has intended to equip his saints for the work of the ministry. And the same thing, and this is where the kingdom-minded comes in, happens within the church, right? Because I like Terry, or because I like Blake, or because I like John, I want to work in adults, or I want to work in students, or I want to work in children's. And instead, what we should see is that children's ministry is an opportunity for us to pour the Word of God into children so that when they make it to student ministry, they already have a foundation for their faith. And then student ministry can come along and show them how to walk out that faith in practical terms when they're starting to learn and think for themselves and they're having to exist in an environment away from the care of their parents. And we can pour into them. And then as they become adults, we've equipped them to go out into the world and to live lives not only where they're leading themselves in faith, but where they're leading others around them in faith. When, when I think about my role as a servant in the kingdom that way, there shouldn't exist any division between us. There shouldn't exist any disunity 
Because God is raising up people uh, to, for his kingdom. He's raising up the workers for his fields. And we should give him the glory. That's what I was referring to in Ephesians 2, because it, it says in Ephesians 2 that God not only has saved us, but he's also gifted us. He's also teached us, trained us, equipped us. And then, this is the best part, he's laid good works right in front of us, and all we have to do is walk in them. That's what Paul's saying when he's saying only God gets the glory. He's saying God is just, I didn't do anything. That's what he's saying as he planted these seeds. I didn't do anything. God just laid this in front of me and I just walked in it and he's the one that gave the growth. Man, if we had a mentality like that, there wouldn't be any disunity in the church today. And he's given us leaders so that we might be equipped, not so that we might create factions or create celebrities. And so we have to recognize that only God gives the increase and gets the glory. But then Paul does something interesting here. He, 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 changes, he changes metaphors, right, in verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. This is kind of the same thought that he's been going through. You are God's field. But then he says, God's building. So, so we've totally changed what we're talking about. Now, now we're not talking about the field anymore. Now we're talking about the building, and then in verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it, and let each one take care how he builds upon it. And so as he shifts in this, in this metaphor from talking about plants in a field, we grow in depth of our understanding of what he's talking about and, and the intricacies of it. It's not a different thought. It's just meant to help us see a different picture. You see, when we plant plants in a field, they're all different plants, and some of them grow and some of them don't. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, right? We see these acts as different of planting and watering. But when he brings in this idea of building, what we start to recognize, I don't know how many of you guys have ever worked on a building with somebody else, but you got to both be doing the same thing. You have to be on the same page. You have to both be doing your best, for that building to turn out right. It is infinitely more difficult for you to, two people to build on something together, three people to build on something together. They have to be unified, but they also have to be laboring together. They have to be in this work together. Uh, or otherwise you'll get something that is not right. And so as he gives us this analogy of the building, he adds depth to it. And we see that we are laboring together to build this building, and we're dependent on each other. I, I think that's the difference between the, the, the planting and watering, right? The, the plant is dependent on both the planter and the waterer, but each other, are not, they're not dependent on each other. When you're building a building together, you are dependent on the other workers. And here's the other thing that I, that I want you to see, and we've got just one more point, and then we'll wrap up. We are also all, not only are we all working on the same building together, we are also all being built together. Because that's kind of the other way that you could look at that sentence there. And you could just recognize that we are all being built on as well. Not only are we all as the church building as we're discipling other people, leading them to faith and helping them grow in their faith, but we also all have been brought to faith. And we also all are the recipients of discipleship and of each other's actions, whether positive or negative. And all of that contributes to what is being built on us. 
And so everything that we do, as we think about this idea of unity and maturity, everything that we do matters. Every, every choice of words, the way that we deal with every situation. You see, it's interesting because the, I said the first part of First uh, Corinthians, Paul is talking about the unity and disunity that he's seeing in the church. And he's writing about that specifically. He moves on to write about, uh, and we're going to look at this as we move through Corinthians, to, to write about some of the issues that are really causing disagreement within the church. And most of them have to do with how they should handle certain things. And some of it is related to sex, and some of it is related to food. And Paul's ultimate conclusion across all of those things is, you should think about other people when you make every one of these choices. You should think about how your actions are going to affect other people. And I think that's exactly what he's saying here in this building analogy, is that we have to think about what we pour into, the words that we speak, the choices that we make, what we do privately, what we do publicly, because all the while we are building together with one another, both on others uh, in their faith and, and on ourselves. We're being built on. And so the, the last thing that I want you to see is what he says there in verse 11. And I, I'm pretty sure this is where Aaron is actually going to start, so you're going to get to hear verse 11 twice, but that's okay because it's good stuff. We have to be sure that Jesus Christ is the only foundation that we are depending on. He says it here. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, this whole building together analogy falls apart if it's not built on Christ. The whole thing is dependent on the foundation. And if you don't have that right, it doesn't matter what you learn. It doesn't matter how unified you are. It doesn't matter what you build on it. If the foundation is not right, the structure will not be right. And if you want proof of that, Jesus himself talked about it. And I'll invite the band to come on up in, in Luke. If you guys want to flip there with me. In Luke, let's see. I think it's Luke's, Luke 6. Luke 6. Verse 46. And you guys might be familiar with this story because it's in Matthew 7 too. But I, I chose this one specifically and I'll tell you why in just a second. He says, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You see, what Paul is saying here is that we have to be, we have to be certain that our foundation is is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. The reason that I picked to read it out of Luke there instead of Matthew, because Matthew says pretty much the same thing, but Luke says you have to dig down deep to lay that foundation. You have to be certain that that is the foundation. It might seem plausible. It might seem possible to build a foundation that is based on your good works or your political ideology or your job or your 401k, or your family, or even your church attendance, your religiosity. 
But what Jesus just said is that none of those things, none of those things will hold up. When the storm comes and when the foundation is not on the rock and the only rock which has been laid is Jesus Christ, when it's not on those things, the way that story goes in Matthew is that that house is one that's built on the sand. Seems good for a time. But when that storm comes against it, you immediately can tell how fragile that foundation of that house is and it is utterly destroyed. But Luke says that destruction of that house is great. And so I think even as we think about the spiritual food that we need, even as we think about uh, the ways that we can be unified, it's so important, church, that we know without a shadow of a doubt that the thing that we've built our faith on is Jesus Christ and nothing else. And so for some of you guys, you can say, that is, that's where my faith is at. I know without a doubt what's at the core of what I believe is Christ crucified, that I haven't done not a thing to earn the love and the grace that God has showered upon me, and yet his unmerited favor is that Christ died for me. He took my sins and he bore my shame. He was hung on a cross, buried in a grave, and yet he rose again from that grave, and not only did he do that, he ascended into heaven and he told us he's going to make a place for us. And everything that I build on that foundation, we're going to read next week, everything that I build on that foundation will, will stand. It'll be tested and it'll, be, and it'll stand. If, if that's you and you can say that for certainty, as we take a minute to, to pray and to reflect, I'd ask you to just ask yourself, are you growing in your faith? Or are you still relying on spiritual milk? Are you relying on somebody to just tell you what to believe? Or have you learned to discern it for yourself and to digest it and to grow on it? And are you promoting unity as we work together on the same mission? But if you've never believed that, today can be that day. You can have a trust that the Bible just described as something that is built so solid that no matter what, it comes, what comes against it, it'll survive. Would you pray with me? God, we, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its truth, Lord, and, and the application that it has for all of us, no matter where we stand, God. For people that are counted as a part of your kingdom, Lord, would you use what we've learned today, Lord, to lead us as we grow in depth in our love for you, in our knowledge of you, in our obedience to you, Lord, as we promote unity in the church. And Lord, would you show us where we've failed in those things, Lord, and would you lead us to repentance, Lord? And if there's somebody in this place, Lord, that does not know you, that doesn't know what that absolute, without a doubt, reassurance looks like to have a faith that is built on the rock, Lord, would you cause them to cry out to you? Today is the day for salvation, your word tells us. Would they trust you not only to be saved, Lord, for the free gift of, uh, of, of Christ, Lord, for our sins on the cross, but also to be changed and to be made new and to walk in newness with you, Lord. And would you give them boldness, Lord, after they trust you, Lord, to come forward and to share that with those who are here, Lord, and help us to rejoice with them, Lord. Lead us in this time. Speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.